the Lord Jesus said that if your hand causes you to stumble, that you should cut off your hand. Or if your foot causes you to stumble, that you should cut off your foot. Or if your eye causes you to stumble, that you should gouge it out or throw it away. And there are some people who've taken this very literally and they've actually done these things to their bodies in the history of the church. Yet I think they've radically misunderstood the words of Christ. So we're going to talk about that today, as well as uh, some really harsh words of Jesus about hell and about the decision that faces every human being when it comes to sin on one side and God on the other. This is the 33rd installment of the Mark series where I'm teaching, I'm Mike Winger, I'm teaching through the Gospel of Mark. And this is just a verse-by-verse study. But we are focusing on theology and apologetics and going sort of deep into the text to try to understand it very well and very thoughtfully. That's the goal I'm aiming for. I want to take us deep into the understanding of Scripture so we can be thinking biblically about everything. So let's just dig right in by um, first reading the text. So we're going to read verses 43 through 48. That's kind of like the first section we're going through today as we're reading this. Load it into your mind. Allow yourself to ask questions about it. Allow yourself to be trying to figure out what is it that he's trying to say here. And then we'll see if we can answer those questions through the course of the verse-by-verse Bible study. And if this is your first time here, uh, you can subscribe if you're interested in verse-by-verse studies as well as theology and apologetics, answering tough questions to Christianity then uh, yeah, go ahead and subscribe. Make sure to click the bell icon and all that yada yada YouTube stuff. But also, also there's a playlist in the description of the entire Mark series. If you want to be able to just really, really know the gospel of Mark, you can follow along with the whole series as we keep adding uh, videos each week. So here we are. This is it. And here's the question. Does Jesus really want me to actually cut out my eye? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now we will cover verses 49 and 50 today as well, but uh, I'm going to wait on that because I want to study this section and then we'll come back to those because that's a whole other challenging topic when we get to those verses there. And this is a very challenging passage in the Gospel of Mark. I've read in some commentaries that this is the hardest passage in the Gospels to interpret. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it certainly is difficult and in particular, the end of the passage, not the part I'm about to do now, but the last two verses. So we'll uh, we'll get there when we get there. So am I supposed to really cut off body parts? Is that how this works? Is that what God's asking me to do? There, There is a case for this. Okay, here's the case for this. I actually wrote it out in my notes here. I've got like the pro and the con, the case for and against cutting off body parts. And the, the pro case is, it that seems to just be a literal reading of the text of scripture. Now, it seems like we're just reading it plainly. We're just taking it at face value and it says, cut it off, cut it off. Like chop off your hand, your eye, your foot. And there are some people in history who've really done this. There's a rumor, and it may well be true, that Origen actually, you know, one of the church fathers actually chopped off uh, a part of his body, an unmentionable part, I'm sure you could guess. And he did this to obey this teaching. However, as I dug into the history of this, I found two things. Is first off, it didn't seem as though it was because of this teaching. It seems as though he had other reasons. And also, it didn't seem entirely clear that he even had done it. It may have been the kind of thing that people who didn't like Origen just said about him. And then, of course, crazy news spreads like wildfire. So I'm not sure if that's actually true or not. But that's the case for Basically, the case for doing this sort of thing literally is, hey, that's a plain, literal reading of Scripture. and We should always read Scripture literally. Um, which... Nobody does, and no, we shouldn't. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second. Here's the case against it, and there's a lot of good reasons why you should not be removing body parts, although you absolutely should practice what Jesus is talking about here in removing yourself from sin and removing yourself from anything in your life that is wicked, sinful, or drawing you into wickedness. So here's my case. Here, here let me present it to you for your thinking. Um, first point why we shouldn't cut off body parts physically, why that's misunderstanding Jesus, is that Jesus frequently used extreme statements. And we recognize this when we put them together, we see there's a tendency that Jesus has to use extreme statements to make a point. He just liked to talk that way. He wants to get our attention. 
And so some of his extreme statements were you have to hate your father and mother or you can't be his disciple. Well, in context, when you, when you read it, oh, it's literal, I have to hate my parents. Well, but if you read it in context, what he means is you have to choose God even over family. And if family's telling you don't serve the Lord, don't go to church, don't read your Bible, don't follow the Lord, then you, you say, I have to obey God, not man. And you follow anyways. Um, there's other things Jesus said, like take up your cross and follow me. Well, Jesus does really mean take up your cross, but not go get crucified physically. Okay, there's a there's a real meaning here, but it's not a physical crucifixion that everyone's being called to do. It's a spiritually dying to yourself, trusting in Christ, dying with Christ, and all those types of things we've talked about recently in the Mark series. Also, he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood in John chapter 5. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is people do take it literally, and they say he really means that. But if you keep reading on in the passage, John 6, excuse me, he also goes on to say the flesh profits nothing, and he says my words are spirit. So he says that he's speaking like spiritually here, that it it represents spiritual truths and that the flesh profits nothing. So I think that this was another instance where Jesus perhaps actually wanted to be misunderstood by his enemies here in this particular passage, John 6, um, in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. And um, anyway, that's a whole other study right there. But there's three examples of Jesus's extreme statements that weren't meant literally. The second point I'll offer why you shouldn't be chopping off body parts it's kind of weird that I have to do this study, but here it is, um, is that literal does not always equal right. Uh, we do want to take the Bible literally a lot of the time, but the rule isn't to just take it literally every time. Uh, recently, I was given a, a flat earth book, a book that says that the Bible teaches a flat earth. And in that book, it gave a, a, a list of rules, hermeneutic rules. Now, hermeneutics, let me catch you up. Hermeneutics is a term that means like how we study the Bible. Uh, one definition is the art and science of biblical interpretation. So when we say hermeneutics, we just mean you're, you're reading the Bible right. You're not misinterpreting it. You're not putting your ideas in it. You're getting its ideas out of it. That's the idea. And he's, he said in this, and you can see why this hermeneutic leads to his flat earth beliefs partially. There's also a twisting of scriptures, unfortunately, that goes on there. But, but the hermeneutic that he says is the most important central hermeneutic. The primary principle of hermeneutics is always read the Bible literally. And this is, this is painfully bad. Um, this is, no, this is not a, that's not a hermeneutic principle. I, I, I consulted like a couple hermeneutic books just to see, does anyone say this? I've never heard this, to just always take it literally. And that's not the case. So the key is, the, the, the key hermeneutic principle with this would be this, taking the Bible as it was intended. That's the key. Reading it as it was intended, right? By the author, and I would add, by the Holy Spirit who inspired that author. If you ignore the Holy Spirit in your interpretation, you're actually... You're, you have a flawed interpretation matrix and you're going to come up with mistakes. But the, impo- the important thing is to take it as intended, not just literally. If we were to always, you know, take it as literal, then we would have some strange instances like 2 Corinthians 16.9. 2 Corinthians 16.9. Let me, let me take you there since I can bring up the scripture right here where I uh, normally don't get to do this with my Sunday night service. So 2, um, uh, I said Corinthians, it should be 2 Chronicles uh, 16.9. Which says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. So God's God's eyes run to and fro, or they move to and fro throughout the earth. So if I was to force a literal reading onto the scripture here, force it on. God has literal eyes. Two, three thousand, however many he's got, right? And they're they're actually going around on the earth, like they're like a, like a video game. Like their eyes are just moving around on the earth and they're looking for people because he's apparently can't just see everyone everywhere. No, this is obviously a mistaken interpretation because we're not to always take the Bible literally. Here's a better rule because the error here is that we, we get the other rule, which is, oh, take it symbolically regardless. So that's, that's also equally foolish. We should take the Bible as intended and here's a good rule for it. If the literal reading makes sense, then don't look for a different reading. If the literal reading makes sense in its context, then that's probably the right reading. If it doesn't make sense, then you're going to look for a symbolic reading. We do this all the time uh, in our normal conversation. Your buddy's like, oh my gosh, it was so terrible, I died. And you're, you're, you're like, but you're talking to me, so that literal, that literally doesn't make sense. I'm going to take that symbolically. We do this all the time. We need to do this with scripture too. Here's another example from uh, closer to us, a New Testament example. This is Matthew 6, verse 3. Jesus says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus using hands again, but in a symbolic sense. 
your hand doesn't know anything, right? My, my left hand never knows what my right hand is doing because it has no knowledge of any kind whatsoever. So this would be irrelevant. You couldn't apply it into your life. But we get what Jesus is getting at here. He's talking about giving that is not about being known, not about being observed, not about anyone seeing you, giving that is done just to bless others and for no other purpose. So that would be, you know, refuting the whole idea of always, 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 you know, read the Bible literally. So we don't see, here's my third point. That was my second point. The, the, the literal forced reading doesn't work uh, in lots of places in scripture. And it won't work here either when we look at the context. We also, we don't see it practiced or taught in the New Testament. Uh, surely, if this was how we would avoid sin is by removing body parts, then we would see this practiced all the time. It would be all over the New Testament, but we don't see it anywhere ever practiced. Never. In fact, uh, even the idea of circumcision is not forced upon Christians in the New Testament. And that was a, a symbol of somehow the flesh or something like that, it seems to me. And so that wasn't forced upon Christians either. So we don't see it practiced in Acts. We don't see it in the Gospels at any point. It's, it's, it's not meant to be taken that way. It's also obvious that this doesn't actually work, right? You, you know, let's say that, that you're a fighter. You get in fights and you fight with this hand. You, you're always pounding people. So you cut off your hand and, and now you, 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 you attach like a hook to it instead. And now you're just a more dangerous fighter. I don't really see how this fixes anything. You can, any sin you can commit with one eye or one foot or one hand, you can commit with the other one. Think about it. You can, this doesn't avoid sin at all. Um, so this, this is a problem. What I can do with my right eye, I can do with my left eye. This doesn't stop me from sinning. Here's another reason why we don't take this to be literal, which is that it's obvious that um, everybody would be blind and limbless as Christians. Because every Christian is, and there are some who deny this, but every Christian is constantly dealing with sin in their, in, and it's expressed in their hands and their feet and their eyes, yes. So we would all be, you know, quadruple amputees that have our eyes gouged out. And then I guess I'd have to get rid of my ears and my tongue too, because my tongue, like James says, the tongue is a world of fire. And it tells us that pretty much everyone stumbles in their tongue, in their speech. We all stumble in speech. Well, clearly the solution is cut your tongue out. But no, James says, bridle your tongue. Okay, so clearly this is not what Jesus is talking about in the context of scripture. Let me add one more problem, which is that I would have to cut out my brain because my brain is causing all kinds of issues. I mean, if my hand can be said to be the cause of my sin, then certainly this thing up here is causing sin. And so I would actually have to commit suicide to fulfill this, which by the way, I'm saying don't do it. That would be violating biblical principles, not fulfilling them. Also, here's another reason why we don't do this. Uh, Jesus has already used this concept metaphorically um, and you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But also the scripture uses these concepts metaphorically as well. That your hand, your foot, and your eye, notice how there's only one of each, hand, foot, eye. These are used metaphorically in the text of scripture. This is not only used metaphorically, like when we say the Lord is at my right hand. We don't, we don't mean the Lord's at my right hand, like the book of Psalms says. Physically, literally, we mean he's with me. He's with my activities. He's with the things I'm doing in my life. He's He's, you know, helping me accomplish his will in this world and he's empowering me. That would be the Lord's at my right hand. Well, in the New Testament, we see this taken to the next degree. Let me take you there now. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. This is speaking in very much the same vein as what Jesus is doing when he says, cut your hand off. If it's causing you to sin, cut it off. Here, Paul's counseling the same kind of thing. He's like, except he adds the word consider, which helps us understand the metaphorical nature of these things. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead, as dead. But what are they dead to? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then it even connects it to what Jesus is saying, because he says, if you don't cut it off, it's, it's hell. That's what he gets at. And Gehenna, we'll get there in a minute or in 20 minutes or whatever. Um, but in uh, Colossians chapter three, verses five and six, being a parallel of Jesus's statement here, it says, for because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So yeah, it's like, do this or that, this or that. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. It has to do with stopping your sin because it's keeping you out of God's will and even out of God's kingdom, turning from sin to God. That's the idea. Another verse that has the same kind of concept is Romans 8, 13, 
It says, for if you are li uh, living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. I walk, another way to put this is I walk in the spirit. Therefore, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'm, I'm living in and according to God's Holy Spirit and his holiness. And so I don't obey the flesh. My, my ability to overcome sin is found in God's spirit is another way of putting it. Uh, we also have this stuff used poetically in the Old Testament, uh, the hand, the foot, that sort of thing. So let me take you to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Notice how in Jesus's culture and the time that he was in in the first century, they, I mean, they were living off the Old Testament. They know it very well. So they're, you know, if, if a term or a, a type of symbolic meaning is used in the Old Testament, they're going to be familiar with it in their culture, more so perhaps than we are in our culture. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Notice it's the eyes that are haughty, a lying tongue. Right? As if, if, it, as if it was, well, it wasn't me, it was just my tongue that lied. But that's not what it means. It, these are just representatives of those sins. And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So this is the same type of symbolic thing. Jesus is saying, guys, whatever your sin issues are, you need to cut them off. And we'll come back to how intense that is in just a minute. So this, this, is, um, this is a representation of the sin. It's not meant to actually be saying that this is the physical cause of sin. Your, your, your physical arm is not causing you sin. Your hand is not causing you sin. Nor are any other body parts you may be thinking of those are not the things causing sin. It's your, it's your sin nature and you need to overcome that by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the important thing. Your hand. So let's talk about these three things. Jesus picks these three metaphorically. I think I've built a strong case for that. They, they represent something. The hand represents something. The foot represents something. And the eye represents something. And they're all different things. So the hand, what does that represent? Well, I think we can actually look at an example of this in Psalm 31 verse 15 which says, my times are in your hand, speaking to God, my times are in your hand, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. He's not literally worried about just their hands. Like it's only their hands that I'm scared of. It's rather the, the ability of the enemy to do things, right? Because it's, it's only one hand that's mentioned. Deliver me from the hand of my, like there's a bunch of enemies and they got one hand. Jesus only mentions one hand as well. In fact, the mentioning of only one hand seems to highlight the symbolic nature of, of the point here what my enemies will do to me. So your hand represents what you do, your activities in life, the things that you go about doing. Then we have the foot. What does that represent? Initially, I thought the foot represented where we go, but I'm going to suggest that we think maybe there's more to it than that. Um, here, Proverbs 115, it says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil and hasten to shed blood. Now, in this passage in Proverbs 1, Specifically, the thing that the wicked, the sinners in particular, that's what they're called here, that they're running to, that they're doing, is they're not only running to bad places, like going to like a strip club or something like that. They're not just going to bad places. They're actually having bad plots. Like they have whole agendas that are bad. Like they plan on scheming to take advantage of weak people, to um, just take advantage of the people around them. This, this could refer to all sorts of scams that people run in life underpaying your employees that that would yes that would fit this kind of your foot your your agendas your plans your way of life uh, plots to defraud other people um, theft that sort of thing so your hand seems to represent sort of any activity of sin whereas your foot is more of like agendas and plans whole like lifestyles that are wrapped around sinful ways of living like if if you were to remove that sin from your life you have to remove a whole chunk of your life because that's the way you live. It's not just something you do. So this this is pretty heavy. Now, when it comes to the eye, what is Jesus talking about? Um, I think you already are thinking about lust, which is true, right? So 1 John 2, 6, teen says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And it talks here about lust of the eyes as though that's not entirely the same thing as the lust of the flesh. That's pretty interesting. The um, the lust of the eyes here, though, it seems to be not just sexual desires. That's part of it. But it's not the whole story. 
I think lust of the eyes is material wants. Like the lust of the flesh is lust for experiences, I think. Uh, you know, like cravings. And then the lust of the eyes is the desire for, I, I want to look at that. I want to own that. I want to have that. I want to just peer at it. Uh, this this ad addiction to seeing stuff that you shouldn't be looking at. Now, that could be inappropriate images like in pornography, that kind of thing. But it could even just be your obsession with classic cars gone to a sinful level. Now, you can enjoy classic cars. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, classic cars aren't sinful in and of themselves. They're certainly not. But there can be a sinful thing that happens to us. I think that I've seen this in my life and I try to be try to be aware of it when I see it cropping up and coming up in me, this sort of, boy, that's not just, that that's materialism. That, that thing I'm seeing in me is actually a type of materialism and an unhealthy attitude towards the things I'm looking at. So I was thinking about giving a bunch of more of examples of this lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, excuse me, excuse me, lust of the eyes, wrong verse, of the... Um, of cutting off your foot, cutting off your hand, and gouging out your eye. I was thinking about giving you more examples in real life of these things, but I want to pause for a second and ask you this. Don't limit your interpretation of this verse, I should say your application of this verse and these passages, to just what I can come up with as my examples. Because the reality is that I think the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. And I think that you're aware when there's things in your life that are the hand, the foot, or the eye that need to be cut out. And that you know it. And you don't need a pastor to call you out and happen to mention exactly the issue you're dealing with. I mean, maybe some people need that, but you can listen to the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't explain it, did he? He just gave it to them because he's like, you guys know. You know the things that are keeping you from following God. You know the stuff. It just, it comes naturally. And if you aren't aware, if you feel like you're blind to it, pray, God, open my eyes. You know, God's alive and real and, and interacts with you, even responds to prayer. So call out to him. Lord, show me where... I have the eye that needs to be cut out, the hand that needs to be cut off, the foot that needs to be cut off. Like, show me where in my life, my plans, my actions, or my desires are, are keeping me from following and obeying you. And allow him to show you, not out of fear and paranoia that you might have issues that you don't know about, but out of the clarity and wisdom that comes when the Holy Spirit brings to light something in your life. And it may feel like severing a body part. And I think that's what, this is why Jesus uses such ex an extreme example. It may feel like you're cutting off an actual body part. Because, I mean, talk that would be something that would be very hard to do. Because there are things about your sin that you might love. And there are things about your compromise that you might be really used to and re even rely on in some ways. But cut it out. Cut it out. Cut it out and give it to the Lord and follow him in those things. Here's an example of Jesus doing this with somebody. Where Jesus interacts with the, the rich young ruler, I think he shows us an example of someone who had a sin issue that caused him to have to cut something out of his life that not everybody would have to. So um, in the example, Jesus is approached by this rich guy, young guy, who's also a ruler, so he's also part of the council. And he thinks he's a good person, so he's like, hey, Jesus, and yeah, good teacher. He's like, why do you call me good? All that. All this kind of conversation happens between the two of them. But Jesus, um, I guess I should take you to the Matthew passage first. In Matthew 19, 21, Jesus gives him an instruction that I think shows that he has something in his life that needs to be cut out that might not even be a problem in everyone's life. But for this guy, it is a problem. And in Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he asks the guy to cut off this issue, this money issue from his life by selling everything he has and giving it to the poor. This is not a general command for every Christian to do this, but some people should. And the man, when the young man heard this, his, this, this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The guy had a lot of money and property. He had a lot of stuff and Jesus like, Jesus like asking him to sell it all and come follow him. And this is actually an obstacle between him and God. Like that money had become the thing that was keeping him out of the kingdom of God. That's what it seems like to me. And so Jesus, uh, in the passage I almost shared with you earlier, but I'll, I'll give it to you now. In Luke 18, 24, he seems to show not that money is wicked, but that it is a temptation. And that having a lot of money presents you with greater challenges, a greater attachment to this world instead of attaching yourself to God's kingdom. Luke 18, 24, it says, And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
how hard it and specifically targets those who are wealthy because that can be the the thing that needs to be cut off in some people's lives and it could be cut off by giving away all the wealth it could be cut off by a whole new per perspective on wealth like james talks about how the rich should glory in their shame and he means in when they can look at their wealth and realize this is just paper this is just stuff that's all going to burn and i glory in the day that i will enter my true kingdom with god I mean, the true riches in Christ and all this is just serve is just stuff I can use for God ways I can bless others. It's not about me. Like that's, that's a good attitude. Um, yeah. Christians shouldn't need to be forced to, uh, to help others with their finances. It should just flow out of us naturally as we put first God's kingdom. So this call to sin, uh, to sin, to, uh, cut off sin, to stop sin, the call to remove sin from your life at all costs at all costs, it does have application to believers and non-believers. But Jesus here in this passage seems to specifically be targeting non-believers or those who are on the fence, those who are there, or maybe we don't know if they're believers or not. Maybe they're kind of that in-between zone where you're kind of like, you're not sure, they're not even sure. And some of us are in that place. We're like, am I a believer? I, I don't know. I think so. Maybe not. I'm not sure. And this seems to be targeting that kind of thing when you're making a choice between you know God and the world, between sin and your creator and your savior between hell and heaven. And that's why he brings up hell in this, um, in this passage. He brings it up pretty strongly because there are things that are just incompatible with following Jesus. They're incompatible. And we could just call them your hand, your foot, and your eye, but you know what they are. Because as soon as you think, if I was to truly follow Christ in my life, I would have to do, and you fill in the blank. Whatever's in that blank, that you need to cut off. That you need to make a decision about. That's the thing that's keeping you ultimately from following Christ. This is repentance. This is turning from sin to God. And it's a hugely important issue with the gospel of Christ. Uh, culture doesn't like it. They never have. And they never will because our culture in general is part of the world system that the enemy is in control of. And not that everyone's aware of this, but that they are held captive by him to do his will according to scripture. And so, of course, the world's never going to like it. It won't be a popular message. The gospel, if the gospel ever becomes truly, truly popular in our world, it'll be because it's not really the gospel anymore. That's just the nature of things. We have to bring, pe to, pe bring to people the confrontive nature of the call to turn from sin to God, to cut off that wickedness and turn to Christ. We can't just go around telling them, as I've heard recently a lot, you're all amazing, God loves you and you're amazing, he loves you just like you are. Just stay the way you are. Just kind of like acknowledge him and go forward with your life. And that's not really the message of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you're earning your salvation. Don't... People will misunderstand this. This doesn't mean you're earning your salvation. The, the act of not committing that sin and going and doing these good things is not saving you at all because you could do that all day long and you're not going to get saved. And even when you do get saved, you're still going to deal with sin. But there's some like decision that's made to turn and follow Christ and to choose you know, God's kingdom over the world and its sin. That is a real choice that you have to make. It just doesn't earn you salvation. Like Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tell us, um, I love Ephesians, I love verses 8 and 9, and it tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, by grace, right? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yeah, works come in after salvation for where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Those come post-salvation, but they don't cause salvation. So repentance is an attitude. It's an attitude change. God then works in your heart to help you fulfill and accomplish doing his will in this life uh, by his Holy Spirit. It might just feel like this. It might just feel like, um, okay, God, my life is yours. Jesus, my life belongs to you now. I'm not, I'm not going to live my own way. I'm not going to do my own thing anymore. I, I yield. I think it feels a lot like just yielding. I yield. Your way, not mine. Holiness, not sin. And yeah, you're not perfect, but there is that real decision that you make. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, Jesus is talking about hell in this passage. So let me, let me take us back there again. And we're going to look at what Jesus says about hell. And we're going to discuss this in more detail. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. We talked about that. He says, it's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Then it has this brackets. Notice those brackets. I'll come back to that in a minute. 
but these brackets, this is the NASB translation here in uh, Mark 9.44. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. More brackets. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. In a bracket. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This last time in verse 48, there's no brackets around that phrase. I'll explain that to you in just a minute. I just want to make sure I point it out to you so that you're aware of it. That is a, an interesting issue we're going to talk about. Pretty quick here. Uh, but first, let's talk about the the hell issue. Um, Jesus uses different words for um, for hell, um, as well as the Bible as in general. And in our English translations, they're often a little sloppy, it seems. From my understanding, they're, they're a little sloppy about how they translate the words, the different words used. So we have words like um, Hades or Gehenna or Abuso, Abyss. So we have these all these different words, and they're all often translated hell in some translations. Other times, they try to be careful and differentiate. The word that's being translated hell here from Jesus is actually in all of these verses is Gehenna. What's Gehenna? Well, some people just say it's just a valley south of Jerusalem. That's all it is. Gehenna is actually, it comes from the Hebrew Gehenom. Gehenom in the Hebrew comes into, which means the valley of Hinnom, right? And then it comes into Greek, Gehenna. And we get that translated, transliterated to English. We pronounce it, you know, Gehenna. And Jesus has it, uh, you know, on the lips of Jesus, the translators have the word hell. But what is, what is this exactly? Well, Gehenna in the Old Testament, and we, we see this in, um, in Jeremiah, we see that Gehenna was a location where um, apostate Israel, uh, Israelites would go and they would offer sacrifices to false gods in this area south of Jerusalem. They would offer their children, burning them in fire to false gods. The, one of the most heinous things that God hated the absolute most in the Old Testament. They would do that there. Even some of the kings did that sort of behavior. And so God in Jeremiah, he's going he's gonna to cause them to be slaughtered in the valley of Hinnom in Gehenna. Then in Isaiah, we have a different usage of it. In Isaiah, it seems to me that what Isaiah talks about at the very end of Isaiah, the last chapter, in fact, the last verse, it talks about this. Let's look at it now. After discussing a new heaven and a new earth, so a new creation, Isaiah then at the very end speaks about, you know, those who are part of the new creation. It says they will then go out, these are the saved, they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. And so this this is at the same location, it seems, going out, they're going out to that valley of Hinnom, it seems, from the other context of Isaiah. And it's even the phrase Jesus uses, and their fire will not be quenched and the worm will not die. That's interesting, isn't it? So that's definitely connected to Jesus and uh, in, in the mind of the people around him. Now, some would say, well, that just means that all that's really going on here is we have a, a physical location Jesus is talking about. Like, they're, they're not going to hell. Jesus is just saying, if you don't listen to my words and follow me right now, in 70 AD, 40 years later, when Titus comes in with the Roman armies and he kills people in Jerusalem, you guys are going to be burned in the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem. I have a problem with that. And my problem is this. Yes, it starts with the Valley of Hinnom, but Gehenna's usage changes even in the book of Isaiah. It's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And it's and it's talking about the same kind of final judgment in Isaiah 66, it seems, that Jesus is talking about. It's not just talking about a physical location. And that seems to be supported by other places as well. Um, so let me read to you now in Judith, chapter 16, verse 17, Judith. This is, this is an intertestamental work. This is not in your actual Bible, and it's not supposed to be, but it's still a historical writing that, would have, that many of the Jews would have been aware of in the time of Jesus. So they're aware of this historical writing. They're thinking in these terms. So it's apocryphal, but it's still information we can glean from it. Judith, Judith, Judith 16, 17 says, Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. So it's about the future day of judgment. And it says, he will send fire and worms into their flesh, and they shall weep in pain forever. The implication is that in, in this intertestamental book, they're thinking that this is about final judgment that results in eternal, uh, eternal torment of some kind. Uh, I don't think it's clear that it's eternal torment in Isaiah. I'm not saying that, that Judith makes it eternal torment. Uh, actually, all I'm saying is that we do have good reason to think that Jesus 
And the people that he's talking with um, are thinking this is a future final judgment thing going on here. Also, to push it out past AD 70 and to push it into like a future final judgment moment, we have Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, 28. Let me put it up on the screen for you. Where Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell or Gehenna. So this is clearly talking about God's final judgment. I think I think that's pretty clear in the text. He's, he's saying, Don't worry about people who can only hurt you physically. God who can who can destroy body and soul in Gehenna. And this is talking about a future judgment, not just a location south of Jerusalem where some people will suffer and others won't. This is this is a lot bigger than that. It's not just about 70 AD, not even remotely. Because humans, guess what? Humans can throw you into a trash heap and Gehenna. They can throw you there and burn you. But only God can do what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10, 28. And only God can do what Jesus is talking about in our passage in Mark chapter 9. So let's talk about his descriptions of what uh, Gehenna, the Gehenna experience is like. He, he calls it uh, going to Gehenna or thrown into Gehenna. He describes it as having unquenchable fire. So this would be fire that doesn't go out, fire that doesn't go out. Now, I'm, I'm trying to give a sort of an analytical understanding of these things, and I don't want to go beyond just this passage. I don't want to do a whole thing on hell right now, but just in these verses right here, the fire doesn't go out, and then the, so it's unquenchable. Uh, the worm does not die. The worm does not die. Well, what are worms here? Well, worms, if you have a, a, a body, you know, worms are decomposing and eating that body. It's talking about like a type of a maggot in this passage. And the worm never dies. The worm never dies. What is the point here? The point is that it's like somehow permanent, complete, or unending. And I think that this particular verse could be open to a couple different ways of understanding it. I don't think it's incredibly clear, although I think other statements from Jesus lean me towards the traditional view of hell here. I'm just saying this particular verse, it just means it's unending, permanent, or complete. The, the destruction's going on constantly. Also, I want to say that we shouldn't take this to be totally literally, to, to, to be totally literal. And the reason I would give is this. Worms and fire do not go together. Now, remember our rule. We take it literally unless there's a reason not to. But worms and fire don't go together. Like whatever worms you've got, fire will kill them. Right? So, so either these worms aren't the normal worms, the literal worms that they had at the time, the maggots they had at the time, right? Or the hell, the, the fire of Gehenna is not... A, an actual literal fire so right either you have fireproof worms or you have something other than other than actual fire going on i think these two pictures of fire and worms both speak of things that destroy things that 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 are like involve suffering as well and the, those pictures are brought together brought together to show us that it's an unending or complete or permanent thing that's going to happen uh, when one goes and cast is cast into hell and Tying this to Jesus' other phrase that we had earlier, it has it's something that happens to soul and body. And so it's great, intense, um, uh, final, horrible end. That's the idea. That's the idea. Now, let me talk a little bit about the aside. My aside. And the aside is going to be those bracketed passages. Now, this is where there's significant disagreement in the actual... Um, literature um i should say literature it's the wrong word to use in the manuscript tradition of the new testament we have some passages that have in in uh, some copies you know of our earlier copies of mark we have some that say like in verse 44 the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and we have others that don't have verse 44 there at all verse 44 and 46 both of those verses are in the same boat they're in some manuscripts, not others. And what should we do here? This is actually a really good example of like a, a meaning, what's called a meaningful and viable variant, like a variant that matters. But what you'll find with variants that matter in the manuscript tradition is that they don't matter the way that often Christians are thinking or worried that they'll matter. Because while these variants matter in the sense of if this is, if this is, you know, these, these different manuscripts, if we pick this one, then we have two extra verses over here we don't we have and it's teaching about hell so this is like important stuff right but it's not really relevant to us in, in all reality and here's why 
Because in all of the manuscripts, what we do have is we have verse 48. Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The only question we have is, did Jesus say this three times or did he say it one time? That's the question. My understanding of, of textual criticism, and I'm not a textual critic, but from what I've read, is that we can be fairly certain that verse 48's there, verses 44 through 46 were not originally there. They were um, added more in. Like, so someone's taking what Jesus said and he's putting it into it, into multiple places where it was only in one place. Ultimately, this is interesting. Ultimately, this matters, but it doesn't affect our faith. It doesn't affect the doctrine and it doesn't even change your interpretation of the passage. So this is a good example of what's considered a meaningful and viable variant that ultimately doesn't have a lot of impact to interpretation or the meaning of the text or any of that. Um, so when you see these brackets in some translations, like say the NASB, ESV, um, these brackets, that's what they're there for. They're there to tell you, we're including this in here because it's somewhat questionable. We're not sure if it belongs or not, but we're going to put brackets around it to help inform you. And it's good to go down to the footnotes for more info or go online. Uh, netbible.org has good resources online if you want to read more footnotes about why they did or didn't include certain verses. It's not a conspiracy. Um, it's just, in this case, I think proper textual criticism. Not that textual criticism is always proper, because it's not. But that's how it is. All right, let's see. Where are we here? Um, yeah, okay, that's the variance. Now let's talk just uh, about application of this. The application is really extreme. We realize that Jesus, you know, this, it's about cutting off sin, or you, or you don't get to be part of God's kingdom. You turn from sin and turn to God. And the consequence we've seen is, is like the eternal consequence, the final and ultimate consequence of hell, of Gehenna in this case, thrown into the fire, so to speak, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This couldn't be more clear. Jesus, he, he was a fire and brimstone preacher in some sense, in some places. I mean, he spoke more kindly and more harshly than people often give him credit for. But in our culture, we like to give him more credit for the kindness part and less credit for the harshness part. Some say, I don't want to hear hellfire and brimstone preaching. Well, then you don't want to hear Jesus. Um, and others maybe would take that same attitude and live it in the rest of their life. They would have to say things like, I don't want to hear bad doctor's diagnosis. I don't want to, I don't want to hear someone yelling for me to stop when I'm about to run a red light and I might get myself killed. You might die. Stop. And you're like, you jerk. Hellfire and brimstone. And you're dead. This is... This is the reality of humanity is we need these real warnings that we're in true spiritual danger if we don't turn from our sin and turn to Christ. It's, it couldn't be more important and more relevant. I remember a conversation I had with a friend years ago where she said something that was, uh, it, it was immoral and it was unbiblical and she was a Christian, at least, at least in name. I mean, I don't know her heart, you know, but at least in name, she was a Christian. And I was so gentle. I was so, because I, I knew she would get easily offended. She was just the kind of person who would just get easily offended about things. She would say stuff like that. So I don't like fire and brimstone preaching. And so I, I, I so patiently and so carefully just asked her questions and slowly got her to realize that what she was saying was inconsistent with scripture. It was inconsistent with God and his nature. And finally, at the end of it, she went, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, no, I see that. And she went, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you, are you saying I was wrong? And I was, I remember being like, oh no, she realized what I did, you know? And at that moment, it completely turned. Even though she thought I was right, the fact that I was saying she was wrong, that alone meant that she didn't want to talk to me. She was mad at me. She, she cut me off. <laughs> didn't want to talk to me anymore for quite a while. I don't know if we ever talked again after that, actually. And um, other than like casual high kind of thing. And it was it was that easily offended. And that's our culture today when, when here we are living in sin, needing to repent and turn to Christ. And we're like, wait, I, yeah, I like your Jesus thing. But wait a minute. Are you telling me I have sin I have to repent of? Ooh, and they're triggered and they freak out. That's our culture today. That's our culture. So this, uh, this whole thing goes perfectly with what Jesus is doing. Overall, if we zoom out in the context of the Gospel of Mark, we can see what Jesus is doing here. Um, he tells us about his two comings in Mark 8 and Mark 9. This is review from the past few weeks. His first comings for salvation from sin. And this is to make us citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And he accomplishes it by his sacrifice, unexpected. And the second time he comes is to establish his eternal kingdom. And your participation in this eternal kingdom retires, requires total commitment to God, turning from sin and turning to God in your life, uh, being saved through Christ.
So this is about the urgency of the gospel. The urgency of it. Jesus knew full well how urgent it was. Cut off your hand. Do it now. Turn to God from sin. Our culture doesn't get this, right? We, we are rightly, rightly worried, rightly responding to the issues with coronavirus right now, as of today, in, in the middle of March, or at the end of March as it is. But we are not rightly responding to the gospel in our world. We're like, well, you know, your gospel thing's kind of interesting, but wait a minute, are you saying I'm wrong? And we don't want to receive it, don't want to accept it. Whereas right now, people are want to see how bad is coronavirus, how scary is the diagnosis so that we can respond appropriately. And may I say, like, the diagnosis of human sin is way scarier than coronavirus. You're rightly preparing and responding to coronavirus, but are you re- preparing and responding to the gospel of Christ, which says, turn from your sin and know the grace and love of God, lest you be cast into hell. It's the reality. It's the truth. It's not my truth versus your truth. This is God's truth. This is his revelation to us through Jesus. So coronavirus is huge, but the gospel is bigger. And the stakes are higher than the people generally expect or realize. They're eternal stakes. This is a constant challenge in Jesus' ministry. So what I've done now is I've compiled a few passages I want to share with you. And these passages just share with you, basically, here's um, certain elements of how you can see Jesus over and over again trying to wake people up to the idea that they're not paying attention to the real issues of life. They're worried about this world. They need to be worried about eternity. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Maybe this will help wake us up too. Jesus tells them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man, he cared a lot about the things going on in this life. He was an active member of society. He was a successful businessman. He ignored his spiritual state before God. And Jesus wants us to be aware of these kinds of mistakes. In the parable of the soils, in Mark chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus talks about a kind of person. He compares people to, to, to soil and how the soil receives seed and feeds, feeds the plant that grows. We're like that and the seed's like God's word. And so what kind of soil am I is the question. In verse 18, it says others that are, uh, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So this is him trying to wake us up to the reality that we have a choice between God's eternal kingdom and feeding our flesh and our desires and basically having a worldview that doesn't go beyond the material world. doesn't go beyond not just the material world, but also the present kingdom of this world into God's eternal kingdom. We're just not thinking about those things. Some people don't want to think about those things. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus talks about the confusion about these two food miracles and how they didn't even understand it. He's like, I fed you and you didn't get it. You didn't get it. And it was because he was trying to tell them about his body and blood being offered for them and about the eternal provision of Christ for us, not just feeding you for a day. They just didn't get it. In Mark eight thirty six, it happens again. Jesus says, for what is it profit to a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is being a pretty reasonable guy right here. I mean, it's like an economist. He's, he's like, well, let's see, uh, you know, well, if you eat that hamburger, it's going to bankrupt you for eternity. Is it really worth it? Uh, this is like a, a, a cost analysis where he's saying whatever you're gaining in your sin is is nothing compared to what you're losing because of your sin. Turn to God, trust in God, care about the eternal things that are going on in life. These things matter the most. In Mark 10, 30, Jesus does it again. He says, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. And I'll come to that passage when we get there in Mark 10. And then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Oh man, eternal life. This is why 
the amount of fear and worry that a believer can have over issues like, say, devastating health problems, um, war, any kind of issue you can think of, it just can't touch our hope because we have in the age to come eternal life because we've weighed the cost and we've chosen Christ over this world, over this stuff, over these temporary things. And notice that the disciples didn't get this, I think. In Mark 1.17, we see their original calling. I was reading through Mark just looking for places where Jesus was, was helping try to op- open people's eyes to the eternal issues instead of just being so focused on what's happening right in front of them. And in Mark 1.17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. His initial promise to the disciples was that they were going to become fishers of men. And yet throughout the gospel, they seem to consistently think that their calling is something more like, follow me and I will make you kings upon the earth within the next six months. You know, they, they think they're going to have their treasure in this world. And it's actually disappointing to them perhaps a bit until they realize that everything in this world is going to burn. And our treasure in the eternal kingdom will never, ever fade. Okay, let's cha- let's take those last two verses in this Mark passage. Um, Mark chapter 9, verse 49, and we'll explain these very challenging passages. I'm just going to give you my understanding of them, and you can think on it. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Love to hear your thoughts in the comments section. Mark 9, 49 says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. So these are two somewhat disjointed sayings. I mean, they, they seem disjointed. Uh, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell choices at first. And so you're going to cut off your hands so you won't be thrown into fire. But then in verse 49, he's like, everyone's going to get salted with fire. Well, when you salt something, you like sprinkle salt on it. So he's like, there'll be a, you, you may not be thrown into the fire, but you may be sprinkled with fire. So this seems to be a different experience of fire. So fire above in the verses before this were about final judgment. But fire here in verse 49, I think, is about trials and suffering. How so? Well, they're only salted with it. I mean, the people in 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 the um, thrown into Gehenna that they're they're not salted with anything. They're 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 not just seasoned with something. They're experiencing it completely. These are trials that season you. Trials that season you to make you more salty. In other words, you're salted. The, the fire of trials in your life, the suffering you go through, it makes you more like Christ. So it's salting you as opposed to it, be, it assaulting you, being judgment with, without any sort of spiritual benefit in your life, final judgment. We all go through trials. Now, you know this. And you have experienced trials where you grew in your faith. You became stronger in the Lord, more humble and more godly in Christ. And those trials salted you. It was like fire, but it salted you. An example of this type of thing is 1 Peter chapter 1. Where we we read about trials benefiting us. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're waiting on the Lord. You know, we're, we're, we're suffering these trials temporarily, but it's going to have some sort of greater glory as a result. Probably the most famous passage is James, two, or James 1, verses 2 through 4 on this idea. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And it's just various, like any random trial you experience. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The trials are causing you to grow up in Christ and to become more salty, so to speak. And here we go. Then verse 50, um, Mark 9, our last verse for tonight. Salt is good. The salt becomes unsalty. With what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right. So now we've transitioned from fire of of hell or fire of Gehenna to fire of trials that just salts you just living tough times in this life we're in right now and now we've transferred into salt like us being salty and so we I hope you see the cohesion of at least my interpretation here I think it I think it makes sense I think it's what Jesus intended now in our modern use of the word salt we uh we usually say are you being salty we mean like you have your bad you have a bad attitude, you're upset, you're offended, you're, you're mad that you lost something or someone offended you, that kind of thing. 
Um, but they didn't know it that way. Nobody in the first century was like, you know, Peter, stop being salty. Like nobody did that, you know. Instead, uh, they knew salt as like three main things. One, it was life-saving. It was life-saving because they don't have refrigeration, so they actually use salt to, to preserve food so that they have something to eat during lean times. So salt was literally life-saving. Um, in that sense, we want to be salty because we're sharing the gospel. It was also flavor-giving because you just put salt on food. And we want to be living holy lives in this world so that we bring benefits and blessings of love and kindness and the truth of Christ into this world into this world. And finally, it was sacrifice making. And this is probably something that doesn't come natural to us. In the Levitical law, they would offer salt with the sacrifices. So they put salt on a sacrifice and then they'd sacrifice it. Isn't that interesting? Leviticus 2.13 talks about it. It says, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. That would be known to the Jew of Jesus' time, but not to the modern Gentile who reads the Gospels a hundred times and Leviticus none, right? And so we need to know this. We need to know this. Another verse for this is Exodus um, chapter 30, verse 35. With it, you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. So even the incense that was used in the temple, it had salt. That's interesting, right? So salt, God wants salt to be involved in the things that are offered to him. And if salt can represent not only present, presenting the gospel to the world, but living holy lives, peaceful, loving, gracious, being a gracious person, that's a huge part of it. As we see when he says, have peace in, your, in and among yourselves in the Mark 9 passage. In fact, let me, I share so many verses with you. I want to make sure you don't miss it. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Love and love and fellowship and peace amongst brethren is hugely important and easily divisive attitudes. That is not salty, not not in, not in the biblical good sense. That is not salty. That's salty in the modern bad sense. <laughs> yeah, so we don't want to do that. Now, um, uh, let me. I lost I lost contact with my notes there, so I had to restore them here. Uh, one commentary puts it this way: the process of salting with fire makes a salty disciple. The trials you're going through, allow God to use them to create in you a more loving, gracious, kind, holy person. One who follows Christ even more. One who cuts off sin from their life and seeks to serve the Lord in all that you do. This is a process. You're not like, I'm Christian, so therefore I have good character. On the contrary, we need to die to ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We need to offer ourselves like that sacrifice of that was that salted, I want to be given over to the Lord to serve him fully in my life, but I better make sure that all that I do is done in love and done in grace. And even if I have hell, fire, and brimstone preaching, it is done out of a true heart of love, out of a true heart of hope and uh, reaching out with the truth of Christ to a dying world. Don't become unsalty. Or else, how are you going to make that salty again? I think the, the, the point there at the last part of the verse there, uh, last part of the section, if it becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again? It's like it, there's nothing really to make it salty. You know, some people debate like how does salt become unsalty? I don't think that's the point with Jesus. I think he's saying the church is meant to lead in moral and spiritual goodness and acts of love in this world. We're meant to lead in that. So get your eyes on Jesus and lead in that. Be an example. Don't just be good at theology. Be a Christ-like example in this world or else you're actually not very good at theology. You're missing it. Modern culture right now, and I'll end with this. Modern culture creates critics, uh, it seems. As I go online and I see everyone's criticizing everybody and they're criticizing them harshly and often without even listening carefully to what they say. Modern culture tends to create critics and social media is often just about who am I criticizing next? I mean, go next time you go on social media, look around and see how many things are just like one group criticizing another group. And that's, that's just criticisms. Now there's a place for criticism, but that can't be the whole story for us. What we want to be is not just critics. We want to be examples, examples of Christ in this world. And that will involve sometimes criticizing. That's true. Jesus criticized whole groups of people, but that wasn't his whole thing, right? Criticizing something he did when it was needed. It wasn't his identity. I want my identity to be in Christ, walking in love, walking in grace, trying to represent him in this world. What a, what a high calling. I'm not, I'm not up to the task. I need the work of the Holy Spirit to do it, but I should at least be committed to it. And that's, that's the encouragement for today. Fully committed, 
fully offering your heart and your life over to Christ to serve and follow him. If you're willing, uh, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, for myself and for those who are joining with me praying right now, whether they're praying long after I've recorded this study or if they're praying uh, soon, even today when it goes live, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow Christ fully and completely. Show us areas of our life that need to be cut off because those are areas where we have allowed sin to have a harbor, to have a place, to have provision in our lives. Show us, Lord. And then by your spirit, empower us to cut those things off and to do so in the love of God and to walk as salt in this world, as examples of Christ, both with our incredible gracious attitudes and with our wake-up calls to the world and the people around us that there is an eternal consequence to their choices right now. We pray for your empowerment, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining me for this series. There's, again, there's links in the description if you want to uh, follow along with the whole series. And for now, I'll be doing these premieres for the Sunday night services. And we'll see how things go. I'm afraid to predict what next week's going to hold because who knows what's going to happen next week. So we'll just we'll see how it goes. Keep your eyes on Jesus, man. Our hope is not in this world, but our hope is available in this world. Amen to that.